We're going to be looking at Psalm 107 this morning. Obviously, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and our nation has this annual tradition of giving thanks this time of year, complete with a holiday. And every year it comes, and every year it goes, and every year we celebrate it. And after a while, what starts to happen for a lot of us is that it begins to feel a little bit repetitive, right? Have any of you experienced this, or am I the only one? I said for a lot of us, I hope I'm, I hope I'm on the money this morning and understanding what happens in families. Sometimes it even feels meaningless if we've grown cynical. But when David, the king, the man after God's own heart, brought the ark into Jerusalem, he did something interesting. He gave a permanent assignment to Asaph and his relatives of giving thanks to God. Permanent. That was their job. Think about that for a moment. You think once a year, Thanksgiving comes, and it's a day where you're supposed to give thanks, and you're like, man, we have to do this again? <laughs> I mean, it's fun. I like having a holiday. I'm glad. I'm glad we get a holiday. But Asaph, it was his job and his relatives all year long to give thanks to God. So what does that mean? Can you imagine what that job would be like? You hit like, okay, what's the job description? Well, give thanks. Is there need, you know, do you, do you need more than that? Well, yeah, we do need more than that, don't we? And so that's what Asaph and his relatives did was they thought about that job and then they got creative in doing it. And the whole goal was that they would lead other people to thanks giving. Right? And so this morning, I want to lead us to thanksgiving. This psalm wasn't actually written by Asaph, but. The reason that Asaph was uh, assigned this job is because King David recognized the importance of seeing God and what he's done and giving thanks to him, praising him, rejoicing. <clears throat> and all of these things are connected together. If we dwell on the things that God has done, we can't help but thank him. If we dwell on the things that God has done, we can't help but remind others of those things. Right? This was Asaph. This was his work leading the people in giving thanks. Partly he did this by writing songs of praise. So to give thanks is actually a confession. Okay, it is a declaration. It's a statement. As we give thanks this week and throughout the year, if we're giving thanks to God, what we're saying is that God exists first. You cannot give thanks to God without declaring at that, by that act, at that moment, that he is. Right? And this is part of why it seems awkward to us sometimes this time of year. Because we're interacting with this entire country. Many of the people that we interact with are people who do not believe that there is a God and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And so everybody is thrown together into this one big mess of quote-unquote thanksgiving. And how, how united can we be in giving thanks when some of the people that are giving thanks 
are unwilling to give thanks to God. Some of them uh, don't believe there's a God. Some of them hate God. Some of them are uh, haters of Christians, right? And yet, we're celebrating the same thing, ostensibly, as a nation. But as Christians, if we are to celebrate this holiday truly, if we are to give thanks, we are going to be declaring truths about God. We're going to be declaring that he is, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him, that he's gracious, that he's done something for us that we don't deserve. And that's ultimately when you really become thankful, isn't it? You really become thankful when you realize that you've gotten something and that you didn't earn it. That you've got something good when you should have gotten something bad. Nothing will, nothing will make thankfulness well up in your heart like that, right? Getting that good gift that you weren't expecting because you knew it was the last thing on earth that you should get. So let's not be cynical as we hear this reminder from Psalm 107, a reminder to give thanks. The psalm ought to move us. It ought to touch us in our hearts. And as long as we can escape the cynicism and the, uh, mm, the commercialism, maybe, whatever it is that you want to pin, kind of making this holiday surface level on, okay? If, you can, if we can get past that, then this psalm ought to touch your heart. It ought to connect with you on the level of your soul and not just your mind. You follow? So I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. Instead of reading the entire thing straight through and then talking about it, I'm going to be reading a couple of verses and then talking about it the whole way through. So if we... Look at Psalm 107. It starts with the command to give thanks to the Lord. Verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. So the command this week to us is not from uh, an old command of Congress to make this a repeating day of Thanksgiving. The command to us this week comes from God himself through his word in this psalm telling us what we're to do. And what we're to do is to give thanks. But thankfully, it doesn't end there, does it? It gives us a reason. Why? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? Well, because he is good. Our thanks is based on the character of the Lord and on the actions he has taken. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. His goodness and his loving kindness come together into actions. And what we'll see now as we go through the rest of the psalm is that the psalmist is going to describe what those things are that God has done. How he has shown his loving kindness. How his loving kindness has been everlasting. Right? So the psalmist is going to help us. You can just see Asaph thinking about this. I want people to give thanks. My job is permanent. Thanksgiving, right? Now he didn't, like I said, he didn't write this one, but this is the kind of thing that you would do if you were trying to teach somebody to give thanks, right? You would want to explain to them what they had to be thankful for. You have children, 
and they start complaining, you've got two choices. Either you can complain back, right? Or you can teach them to give thanks. How would you teach them to give thanks? Well, you would explain to them what they have to be thankful for. And like I said, there are two ways of doing that. One way is just complaining yourself. I can't believe you, how ungrateful you are. You're so miserable. Why don't you ever give thanks? It would be kind of ironic, wouldn't it, to be complaining while you were talking about somebody complaining? And yet that's so often what we do. And the, the psalmist here does the exact opposite. The psalmist turns our eyes to God and says, look at the loving kindness of God. Look at his goodness. Here's, here's how it looks. This is what we have to give thanks for. Verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So the first question you've got to ask yourself as you hear this psalm is, am I one of the redeemed? Because this is going to split into two groups. Everyone who hears this, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. God is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting, regardless of whether you are one of the people who has been redeemed or not. And yet, this call immediately goes, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Have you been redeemed? Have you been saved out of your adversary's hand? If you're a Christian... You have been drawn out from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. The deeper our state of hopelessness apart from God, the greater our thanksgiving must be when he saves us. Now, the question is, how deep? How deep in the pit are you? How deep were we caught? How strong was the grip on our adversary, by our adversary? Well, the pit was deep. We were mired at the bottom. Held there by our adversary's hand. And so our hopelessness was complete until God took action and saved us. Complete. And so this morning, will we declare that God has redeemed us? To declare that he has saved us is to declare his loving kindness. And it's to immediately become thankful and call other people to praise God. And this is true when we're speaking not just to other Christians, but when we're speaking to non-Christians as well. If you haven't been drawn out of the pit by God, to hear that there is a God that has drawn people from all over the world, from the north and the south, the east and the west. And what are we here this morning? A group of refugees from various places many of us like roots out of dry ground. What expectation was there of hope? Not even having been born into a Christian family where you could be expected to hear the word of God and taught the truth, but rather what? 
empty, barren, held by the adversary, no one would think there would be any hope of salvation for somebody like that. And so when we say, no, I was redeemed, that's a message of hope. That's something to give thanks for. That's something to let other people hear. Verse 4, they wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. We had no connection to God. We were in the hands of Satan. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. When we were separated from God, we were alone. There was no fellowship. There was no satisfaction in our life. Our lusts consumed us. We constantly needed more, and it was never enough. And at that moment, can you help but feel your need? You know your need at that moment, don't you? You see the people around you who are living at that spot, wandering. You can see the need. They feel the need. Their actions themselves declare the emptiness of their life. And yet we were ignorant of what God's city was even like. Think of a wilderness, a desert, wandering around in it. You start to wonder what it's like to have community. You start to wonder what it's like be safe, to have protection. And so in our need, we cry out to the Lord, and what? He answers. He answered, even though we didn't deserve anything good from him, he answered. And what does it say he did? He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. We're going to hear that again a few more times in this psalm. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Why? Well, because that is a wonder. Rescuing people out of the desert, out of the wilderness, drawing them to his city that he built, making it their inheritance. What right do they have to be in his city? They're his enemies. They have no right. And yet, if they cry out to him, what does he do? He goes and he rescues them and brings them by a straight path into his city. He satisfies, verse 9, he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. They cried out and he answered with satisfaction. He gave us food and drink. Think of Jesus <clears throat> talking to the woman at the well, and he says that he has what? Water. Living water. Not just any old water. Living water. 
and that if she drinks it, then what? Never thirst again. Think about the emptiness in the wilderness and the thirst and the hunger that's there. And Jesus promises that his people will have him himself. And so he gives, he provides abundantly living water and the bread of life. This is why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper later on this morning, we'll do the same thing that Jesus did beforehand. It says that he gave thanks and then broke it, right? And so when we say grace before a meal, what do we do but thank God for how he's provided for us? Food. Shelter. But not just any food. To those whom he has rescued, he has provided living water and the bread of life. Verse 10, there were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains. Why? Because they had rebelled against the words of God, verse 11, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled, and there was none to help. So this is an example not <clears throat> any longer of those who are wandering around in the wilderness, ignorant of who God is and what his city is like and why they ought to turn to him and call out for help. No, this is, this is now an example of people who have rebelled against his command, right? Not to say that the godless wandering in the wilderness have not rebelled, but it's clear now <clears throat> that this is somebody who has spurned the counsel of the Most High, rebelled against the words of God. They have heard. They know what the city is like. They know what it's like to live under his commands. And it says that he humbles them. He humbles their heart with labor. And that they dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death and that they're prisoners in misery and chains. That's a scary thought, isn't it? It's not exactly the kind of thought that you connect to a psalm of thanksgiving, generally speaking, except for what I said before, which is that to the extent that we are hopeless, helpless, to the extent that we recognize that, that is the extent to which we are able to be thankful when rescued out of it. Right? And so it makes complete sense for us to turn and to look at what we were, at where we were, at what the outcome was going to be, and then to see that God used it to bring about what? Our humbling. So that, verse 13, we would cry out to the Lord. As I was reading this, there were a number of times where I thought of the, uh, the descriptions that you have because I've been reading Lord of the Rings with Kate, uh, with our whole family. I thought a number of times of the descriptions that you read in that book of darkness 
And in the two towers, there's a number of times where the, uh, uh, what is it, the Lord of the Nazgul is on a winged beast. And the, the fear that comes upon people when he's nearby, when he's overhead, all right? And it's, it's just these amazing descriptions of them completely losing their nerve. Their heart is gone. The, the, the bold are trembling. They drop their weapons. They stumbled, and there was none to help. Where? Well, those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death. And again, in, in the two towers, you've got darkness. It's rolled over the land. There is no more morning. There's no afternoon. Morning and evening are the same as night. They live under the shadow of death. And what do they need? The whole book is setting up the need of being rescued. Right? And so we read it in these stories, and it's like fantastic. Oh, amazing. And oh, let's make a movie of it, right? And yet, does it escape our notice that far more so, that's our position apart from God? Why does it connect so strongly with us? It connects so strongly because we know what that need of a Savior feels like. We can't, we can't do anything. We're hopeless. Can't even raise a sword. Even the call for help is more than we can muster. And yet, what is all of that? Those who have rebelled, it is a gift from God to humble them. The result of rebellion, the result of rejecting his counsel, is that he humbles us. And if he isn't there to help us in the end, nobody else can do a thing to save us. Nobody else can do a thing unless he's there in the end, when we call. Verse 13, then. And how many times is this true of the Israelites? How many times is this true of us in our own lives? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. So what? So let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. How wonderful is it that he gives us the humbling that we need so that we will call to him so that we are rescued. He does not let us walk out into the desert and then just stay there. He makes the desert miserable so that we will call on him so that he will rescue us. That is wonder to the sons of men, is it not? For he has shattered the gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. We don't have gates anymore. <laughs> Not in cities, right? Gates of bronze and bars of iron. What is that describing? Not a city. Prison. Jail. What a wonder. His salvation is complete. 
for those who humble themselves and cry to him, see what he has done. We have to respond with the deepest level of thanks. Verse 17, fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. So what should we do? We should give thanks. But if we don't give thanks, we will be the fool, right? Only a fool rejects what he has done for us, rejects his loving commands that lead us to life, If we continue in our rebellion, it leads straight to death. We hate even the food that he offers. How can you hate this meal? How can you hate that God sent his son to die so that you might be rescued? What utter, absolute foolishness. And yet, verse 19 says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. Even our foolishness, he will break. Even when we are fools because of our rebellious way and because of our iniquities, even when we don't want to celebrate the Lord's Supper, because we don't want to repent. That's that's us being in our rebellious way. Right? Even then, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Did I skip verse 19? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. As wonderful as it was the first time, as more wonderful as it was the second time, Because the second time, we were rebellious. The third time, we were being stiff-necked and rebellious, unwilling to even repent, hating the food that he offered, and yet, if we call to him, he still rescues us, saves us from the destruction. We're walking off the cliff, and you're falling. You ever had those dreams? You're falling? You're going to hit the ground, right? That feeling of terror. Have you ever had that feeling of terror when you realized that what you were doing was rejecting God, rebelling against his commands? It's like falling off a cliff, isn't it? And so you're falling. What do you do? Cry out to God for help. Oh, it's too late. You're falling. No, it's not too late. That's the wonder of it. He said, don't go there. It leads straight to death. Well, I like it. I'm going to go there. He said, no, don't go there. And he made it miserable, so you had to walk over broken glass to get to the cliff. And you said, I'm going to walk over the broken glass. And then you walked off the edge of the cliff, and you're like, oh, no. It's just what he said it was going to be. I'm going to die. God, help me. And what does he say? Does he say, no, I warned you. I put you... Gave the broken glass. 
son? No. What a wonder. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. You've got to. When that's what's happened, the destructions, they're from ourselves. They're our rebellion. The distresses are our own making, and yet the salvation is from him. How can we respond with sacrifices of thanksgiving? So what does it mean today, now, for you to give sacrifices of thanksgiving to the Lord? We're not talking about the tabernacle and Asaph and animals being brought into Jerusalem anymore, right? Those aren't the sacrifices of thanksgiving that he calls us to. Well, let's come back to that in a minute. In the meantime, tell of his works with joyful singing. That's a little bit more straightforward, isn't it? I've been so thankful this past week for music. It's given my soul joy. I've been singing and listening to the Psalms and to this morning, Kate and I had a song stuck in our head. It was the first Noel. He's still got it stuck in his head, he says. What is that song? First Noel. It's a declaration of what God has done. Right? It's, it's joyful singing because of what God has done. It's the second thing that we're supposed to do, right? Respond with sacrifices of thanksgiving and joyful singing. Tell of his works through our joyful singing. How helpful it is to have songs that help us do that, right? I'm not writing songs. I, I'm sorry, it's just not the gift that God has given me. And so I'm so thankful for those who have done the work that lead us Not just in singing them, but in writing them. What a joy. So fill your heart with pleasant, joyful truths. Not happy thoughts. The first Noel is not a happy thought. All of the godless world will tell you that that's just a happy thought that makes you feel good. A little emotional crutch that you need to make you feel good. No. No, no. The Psalms are filled with delightful facts. You see the difference? This is not a happy thought. This is not your crutch for today, and you can get a different crutch for tomorrow, and maybe the, maybe the third day it'll be alcohol. Psalms are realistic. They don't reject reality. They accurately describe our pain. They don't pretend as though suffering doesn't exist. But what they do say is that when it's darkest, that there's still hope. That God will not abandon us. And that is the most pleasant promise that you could ever have. A promise from God, the one who made you, and all things, says what he will do if you call on him. And what will he do? He will rescue you. That's something worth sharing. That's good news. 
Verse 23, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. So now what do we have? We have a new example, right? What is this example? This is just an example of living your life. Now, not too many sailors in here. But you live your life, and God declares himself through his creation to bring himself glory. And what does it do? It scares us out of our wits. And they were at their wits' end. Why? Well, because they saw God's power. And they were afraid. Afraid for themselves. Storms are amazing. You've seen them. How many of you have ever seen a tornado in real life? Just one. Like, on a scale from one to ten, are we talking like kind of glowing or ten? A tornado. A tornado is scary. It'll blow your house away. Now, try being on a ship in the water with a tornado. More scary thought, isn't it? Storms on land are nothing compared to storms at sea. These are the storms of life that rage when we're most vulnerable. Nothing tying you down, no basement to go hide in. You're floating on a ship in the open water. What are you going to hold on to? There's nothing solid. Everybody experiences this feeling. This feeling is not limited to those who have called on God. Nor are those who have called on God kept from this feeling. Remember the disciples, right? On the boat, in the water. Jesus is with them. They believe in him. And there's a storm, right? And what are they? Scared to death. Everybody experiences these storms. Verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Now what I want you to realize is when I say everyone who's experienced these storms, that means that you have a point of connection with people who have experienced the mercy of God and have something to give thanks to God for, even as they have refused to call upon his name. Okay, you heard the expression, there's no atheists in the foxhole? It's another example of the storm of life, right? When somebody is literally shooting at you and you're hiding your head down beneath the ground, that's the foxhole, and it's scaring the living daylights out of you, what does everybody do? They call out to God for help. Not literally everybody, but the point is that when people face the most intense pain in their life, when they face the most intense fear, those are the times when they cry out to God. 
And so many times God is merciful and answers their call. He saves them. Do they deserve it? No. Do we deserve him saving us? No. But this is common grace. Common meaning everybody gets it. He brings us through frightful things. Safe and secure. And so when you see your relatives and your friends and your neighbors who reject God going through these frightful things, this is the time when they should call to the Lord. And not just be those who call to the Lord and then forget him. Right? But people need to see that God offers salvation at these times. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still. So many people have experienced this. He guided them to their desired haven. And so what you do when, they, when, when you see somebody who's been rescued, everything's turned out okay, how, how are you tempted to, they, they're flooded with relief. Right? And how are you tempted to respond? This is somebody who doesn't claim the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What do we want to respond with? Well, I'm glad everything turned out okay for you. Boy, you're lucky, sounds like. What? What? No, they're not lucky. God is the one who rescued them. And so what should they do? Verse 31, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. That's what you remind them. That's what you call them to. You should give thanks to God for saving you from that. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. Bring it into the church. Tell the church what God has done, how he has saved you. He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. What is this? He went from the wonders of God to the sons of men, and extolling him in the congregation and praising him at the seat of the elders, and then what? All of a sudden, he changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. One of the kindnesses of God that is hardest for us to be thankful for is when he makes the wicked suffer in their land because of their sins. But ultimately, the beauty of God's mercy is seen most clearly in the contrast between his treatment of the wicked and the righteous. You cannot see the amazing nature of what he has done as he has brought you out of the wilderness and to the river unless he also turns the river and the city into the wasteland and the wilderness when we reject him. You see, it goes both directions, and we've, we've got to see that it, that it goes both directions, or else... It seems pretty random, doesn't it? Well, sometimes God makes good things when there's bad things, and it's just, that's kind of cool. But it's not random.
the, the results of sin affect the land of people who are living in sin. Think of the disastrous consequences of godless communism throughout the world over the course of the past 50, 60 years. Okay? What is the outcome of rejecting God in wickedness? Millions of people starving to death? Is this so hard for us to put together? Going from when I, I, I was reminded of this this last week, reading about the end of the Vietnam War. The Viet Cong take over the South. The South, during Vietnam, had uh, produced more rice in the previous two years. Both of them were record-breaking years in terms of output of food. They'd never seen as much food in the South of Vietnam as they had during the end of the war, right? And then the Viet Cong took over the South, and everybody starved. Do you see? This is the result of wickedness. That's not all that God does. Verse 35, he changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. And there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also, he blesses them as if those weren't blessings. Right? Also, he blesses them and they multiply greatly. Another reminder of how great a blessing it is to have children, right? It's another level above being able to live in a fruitful land where you can sow and plant and gather harvest and have plenty of water when you had been living in a, in a disaster zone. You can have all of these things and then children. What a gift. And he does not let their cattle decrease. If there wasn't a clear negative for the land of the wicked, the clarity of the blessing on the righteous would be lost. This is what I mean by it's not random. You understand? It's in the contrast of what God does for the righteous versus what he does for the wicked that all of a sudden we see the amazing beauty, the wonderful nature of what God has done for those who called on him. It's not, it's not because uh, they deserve these good blessings. Remember, we already saw that the only thing that makes them righteous is the fact that they called on him. Our behavior had us in the pit. It was calling on him that made us righteous. That's why we're thankful. If we were righteous in and of ourselves, and good things came of it, would we be thankful? Who would we be thankful to? Thank you, me, for making me so great. A land of Donald Trumps. And what does this psalm say? It says that the proud will be humbled, that they'll have that their wickedness will actually turn them into nothing. They'll lose the good things that they did have because they reject the God who gave them to them. Verse 39, when they are diminished, 
and bowed down through oppression, misery, and sorrow. He pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. Is it hard for God to bring down the rich, the powerful, to humble them? And that's us. We are the rich. We live as princes in this nation. And this is part of why, going back, we don't want to hear about the fruitful land turning into a salt waste. Right? Because we know that that's what this nation deserves. We're like, eh, no, please, not that. I don't want to live in a salt waste. But here's the thing. God's people, no matter where they live, are they outside of earshot of God? No. And so if you're afraid about what this nation is going to become and what the results are going to be, you may be right. Apart from God turning our hearts and causing us as a nation to repent and call upon him, this psalm says what's going to happen. Fruitful land becomes a salt waste. But his people are not abandoned. And we call on him. He sets the needy, verse 41, securely on high, away from affliction, and makes his families like a flock. The upright see it and are glad. But all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. And so the proud are humbled, and the humble are lifted up and made secure. And the result is that those who are righteous rejoice again in what God has done. And finally, finally, the unrighteous are silenced by God's true promises being fulfilled. And what a joy that will be for all eternity. That no longer will the scoffer scoff. Silence. All unrighteousness shuts its mouth. Because when you see God act to save his people and to destroy their enemies, there's nothing left to say. Unless you're the righteous. And then what do you do? You give thanks. last verse says, who is wise? Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. And so that's what I've been trying to get you to do, is to consider the loving kindness of the Lord this morning. So that you'll give thanks, so that you'll offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. So what does it look like now for us to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving? There's a lot of ways for us to give sacrifices of thanksgiving. What I want you to think about going into Thanksgiving week and then into Christmas already Christmas at Starbucks. What I want you to think about going into this holiday season, and it lasts a while, right, is that 
the sacrifice of thanksgiving will include you giving up your comfort for the sake of other people. Okay? What does that mean? Well, you spend time with family, with friends, even strangers, you have the opportunity this time of year to talk about what God has done, what God has done in your life. And so when you're talking to somebody who's a scoffer, is it comfortable or is it a sacrifice to, to talk about what God has done in your life and to tri attribute all of the good things that you have to God? That's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's not comfortable. It's you giving up your comfort, making a sacrifice, right? But give him the glory of thanksgiving. 